1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. The Apostle Peter is now a much older man than the outspoken disciple of Jesus, who is mentioned more than any other disciple in the four Gospels. He writes this letter to numerous churches and clusters of Christians all over the region of Asia Minor. These Christians find themselves in situations where they are ostracized from society. Many are migrant workers and as such do not have local roots and are strangers to local customs. As cultural outsiders, they are marginalized. As Christians, they are spiritual outsiders, not participating in the worship of the local gods. So Peter is encouraging these believers to be faithful to God and to make an impact for good. That is the overarching theme of the book of 1 Peter. Look with me at 1 Peter chapter 1 as I read verses 6 through 9. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. This is the word of God. Peter has told us how to greatly rejoice. We saw this in the three verses leading up to the passage that we are considering this morning. We do not look to our circumstances as a source of joy. We look to what God the Father has done for us in Jesus Christ. It is in this that Peter shows us how to greatly rejoice. That is in what God has done for the Christian in the past, what he will do in the future, and what he is doing in the present. In this you greatly rejoice. We stopped there last week in the middle of verse 6. Now we're considering the even though that follows. So I'll put it like this. You rejoice even though in this moment and maybe for a little while longer, you were suffering distress brought about by all sorts of trials. So let's talk about this suffering that is brought about by trials. After all, suffering is a reality in this life. None of us are immune to it. None of us will avoid it. The question is, how will you handle the trials when they come? Because surely they will come. And surely one of the distinctives of the Christian life is that we handle suffering differently than those who see no purpose in any of it. When previous generations have been surveyed, Generation X, baby boomers, even millennials, teens and young adults, they often ask questions about the historical reliability of Christianity, such as, what is the evidence that Jesus rose from the dead? And past generations, people wanted to know, how can I trust the Bible? How do I know that what it tells me is historically accurate? That has shifted. 
One of the most common questions of Generation Z, that's folks born roughly after the year 2007, one of the most common questions is, why would a good God allow suffering or some variation of that? Now, we've all asked that question in one way or another. And so with that in mind, let's look to the text to see what the Apostle Peter has to say about it. First of all, let's consider the nature of trials, the nature of trials, or what are they? Peter's audience is vast. This letter is circulating across a region that's nearly 200,000 square miles in size. Christians are spread out. Many are living and working in cities where they are viewed as outsiders. Not only does their status as basically migrant workers, not Roman citizens, but not slaves, their status, not only does it make them suspect to the local populations around them, they're also facing hostility because of their faith in Jesus. In the Christian life, we face both trials and temptations. Is there a difference between the two? Well, there is. And here's the difference. Temptation is an attempt to destroy something. Temptation is an enticement to disobey God, whether the source is other people, our own flesh, or the devil. God may allow temptations, but he's never the source of them. A trial, on the other hand, is a test. It's a test to see if something can stand up under pressure. Do you hear the difference? Trials are what is happening to some of those to whom Peter is writing. They are facing trials designed by God. And these trials, they bring strain and pressure. But as we'll see, they have a very specific purpose. Nobody likes to pass through trials. The very meaning of a trial is that it is something difficult. A trial is a situation that is endured, not enjoyed. If we could lay hold of this truth, that a trial is not supposed to be enjoyable in and of itself, then we would not spend so much time lamenting the suffering and instead focus more on the reason for it. These believers that Peter addresses, they're distressed. This word in verse 6 that's translated distress is probably not referring to physical suffering. It can include physical suffering, but it was usually used to mean mental or emotional suffering. So this kind of distress is brought about by anything from great financial loss. Think about those disappearing 401ks back in 2008, all the way down to the annoying neighbor who won't give you a break. You know the one that when you're driving home from work, you dread pulling in your driveway because you know he's going to be right there with something to say. The emotions that are brought about by the pain and the sorrows of going through life every day in this world are primarily the kinds of distress that Peter is talking about. These trials are various or multifaceted. In other words, they arrive in different ways, at different times, in different forms for each of us. We each face unique trials. Your trials are not my trials. Peter's writing to Christians who in some cases are facing trials because of their witness for Jesus, right? But not every recipient of this letter is in this position. Now, trials do come as a direct result of following Jesus, 
you cannot believe and behave so differently from your non-Christian relatives, co-workers, and acquaintances and not expect to suffer to some degree for it. Now, this suffering will probably not be physical, at least not in this country, but it will be the emotional and the psychological distress that's brought about by ridicule or antagonism or being ostracized. Simply ask the Christian who has faced disciplinary measures at work or even lost their job because they declined to go to the baby shower thrown in the office for the gay couple who just adopted a child. We certainly love everyone as a human being that's made in the image of God, but we cannot endorse lifestyles that are contrary to God's design. So there are stands that Christians are taking in the workplace every day, increasingly so in this nation, that bring nasty comments and accusations of being hateful. These are distressing trials that are a direct result of openly following Jesus. There are other Christians who are receiving Peter's words, and maybe this is the category that you find yourself in today, that are facing various trials simply because God has designed these trials for them. They may not appear to be related to your faith. They may not have any discernible cause, but one thing you know for sure is that they are distressing. We don't want to discount such trials. Everyone experiences suffering, but the Christian knows that the suffering he or she endures is brought about by trials that have been filtered through the hands of God. When considering suffering, first of all, keep in mind that trials are not permanent. They are not permanent. They are only for a little while. One of the things that makes suffering so distressing is that we don't know how long it's going to last. If we only knew the end date, then, then I could more easily endure this. You know, there are those days when nothing seems to go right. But you know from experience, we've all lived long enough to know that tomorrow will probably be better. There are those seasons of suffering and sorrow, and they sometimes seem like they will never end. But you can look back on those now with experiential knowledge, knowing that the emotional roller coaster and confusion did come to an end. You're in a better place now. And there are those trials that last years or even a lifetime. Chronic health issues fall into this category. I think about Johnny Erickson Tata. I believe I've talked about her before. You've probably heard of her. She's on the radio quite a bit. Johnny Erickson Tata, she was in a diving accident as a teenager. Now in her 70s, she's been a quadriplegic in a wheelchair for over 50 years. The Lord used her testimony and her suffering to minister to countless people over the decades. I read her autobiography years ago. And one of the things that I remember is how the first couple of years after the accident, she prayed aggressively for healing. She had others praying for healing. She did everything she could, everything she found in the Bible that she could do when it speaks of the conditions for healing. She believed that the Bible teaches that God could raise her out of her wheelchair. I myself also believe that. But she came to realize over time 
that just because God can do something doesn't mean he will do something. Sometimes it's not that a person has a lack of faith. It's not that a person is not praying correctly. Or it's not that they're knowingly sinning. And that's preventing the healing. Sometimes God simply chooses not to heal. And in Johnny's case, it's clear that the Lord has used her in some extraordinary ways because she is in a wheelchair. In ways that he probably would not have used her if she were not. But even for Johnny, her trial is only for a little while. And I believe she would be the first to tell you that that's the case. You see, one of the reasons that she is so faithfully endured is because she is more focused on the unending life to come than this current fleeting life. In light of eternity, everything is of short duration. Paul captures this idea when he writes in 2 Corinthians 4.17, For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Compared to the glory that is coming, every affliction is light. It's perspective. Perspective. The reality is there is probably very few, if any, trials for you and I that are going to last a lifetime. Most only last what we consider a little while. And remembering this will give you the encouragement you need when the suffering and distress is wearing you down. Secondly, keep in mind that trials are necessary. That's what the text says. Trials are necessary. This phrase in verse 6, if necessary, means if God allows or if God wills. One translation says, even though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. When a trial comes into your life, it is because God deems it necessary. Whatever distress you may face, the fact that you are a Christian means that God has a reason for it. And here's the irony. Your faith is what brings about your trials. Yet, it is your faith that will take you through those trials. One of the things to understand about suffering is that God declares it's necessary for you in this season to feel the pressure. If God has allowed this distress for a purpose, then you trust it is necessary. If we know God is love and understand that love is the sieve through which every trial passes before it comes to us, then we don't just receive it with a shrug or a sigh. We receive trials with expectation. You say, really, Jeff? Notice I did not say we receive trials with excitement. There's nothing virtuous about suffering just to suffer. There's no spiritual benefit to suffering just for the sake of suffering. The distress of trials is only beneficial if you allow God to accomplish his purposes through them. The Lord knows that the suffering is not desirable. He knows that you don't enjoy that. And this is why we know that trials cause suffering and not happiness. And if we lay hold of that, we can now find joy in the Lord in spite of trials. Yes, 
But that joy is not in the suffering itself. We embrace trials because God deems them necessary for our spiritual growth, not because they're enjoyable. People who find joy in the suffering itself are probably not psychologically healthy. Going to the dentist to get a cavity filled is probably going to be painful to some extent. You don't go because you enjoy the pain. You go because it's necessary to endure the suffering in the moment in order to have a healthy tooth. You go through the process of having dental work so that you can enjoy eating in the future. You don't go to the dentist because you enjoy it. You go because it's necessary in order to achieve a greater, more pleasurable goal. Trials are necessary. And Peter goes on to tell us why in verse 7. And so we see the purpose of trials. The purpose of trials. Or, what are they for? Gold was the most precious of ancient metals. Its beauty made it highly sought after, still does. And its malleability and unique density make gold easy to shape and transport, even as coins in one's pocket. Now, there's only a limited amount of gold in the world. For these reasons, gold eventually became, over the centuries, the standard upon which the money system, our current money system, used to be based. Now, this has all changed. The nations of the world now print paper. For the most part, currency that's not backed by any gold. But since ancient times, gold has been seen as the symbol for the most precious and durable of material possessions. Though gold is precious, it is a precious metal, the most precious in the ancient world, it's often mixed with impurities. And there was a process whereby gold was tested by fire. Gold that is mined and is not yet free of those impurities was placed in what is known as a crucible. And this was typically something like a clay pot, some kind of vessel that was not going to melt. The crucible was then placed over a fire. And as the gold within melts and turns to liquid, the impurities, they separate and they rise to the surface. And then those impurities are skimmed off. And when that crucible is removed from the flame, the gold cooled and solidified. It's now been tested by fire. And the result is purity. All that was not gold, anything that would detract from the purity and value of the gold, has been removed. Now this smelting process for gold was well known in the ancient world, maybe not so much for us but it was well known to Peter's audience. And he makes the comparison in verse 7 between gold and the faith of a Christian. Your faith is tested by the trials that the Lord allows into your life. The trials are the heat that if properly received, cause the impurities to be purged. The purpose of God in your trials is to prove your faith, or the trials demonstrate the genuineness of your faith. In other words, trials that produce suffering are the means by which God puts your faith on display. How you react to trials in your life has the potential to make you a powerfully effective witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is Peter's concern for his readers. In their various trials, he desires that their witness not only remain intact, but that it that it is clear to all their non-believing neighbors how genuine 
and durable their faith actually is. People are watching you. And they are not so much impressed with how you handle good news in ideal circumstances. Everyone handles these well. That's not a problem. Those don't take any faith. Your neighbors and your co-workers and your acquaintances, they want to see how you handle adversity and suffering. Because that's going to prove whether the faith in Jesus that you claim to have actually means anything when the heat is turned up. As sought after and valuable as gold is, it is still perishable. Gold is a part of this creation, and it will burn up when this creation comes to an end. Peter writes in his next letter, 2 Peter 3, 7, he writes this, By God's word, the present heavens and earth are being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. The whole present creation is under the judgment of God. It will all perish. And the coming judgment will be a judgment of fire. Even the gold, which is perishable, will not endure. Your faith, however, is not destined to perish. It is destined to be tested by fire through the trials of this life, but not perish. So here are the lessons that we learn about the effect of trials on your faith. First of all, trials test the genuineness of your faith. What if you're attempting to, to smelt a piece of gold that is in reality fool's gold? Remember that stuff? If you heat fool's gold, you know what happens? It doesn't melt. Its real name is pyrite. It doesn't melt. Instead, it gives off part of, part of itself in sulfur form. And then the remainder that's not going away in this gas turns into a related mineral. So heating a piece of fool's gold mistaken for real gold in a crucible will reveal it for what it is. And so it is with the trials of life. We don't just need to think of trials as those big things like cancer or losing your job or being sent to a prison work camp for your faith in a country where Gathering for worship is illegal. Those are big things. But trials come in all sorts of smaller forms that test our faith on a regular basis. A flat tire, a broken bolt, a limb that falls in your van, dealing with unreasonable and illogical people, running late because of circumstances outside of your control, being reprimanded by your employer because of somebody else's mistake. The list goes on and on. Peter, of course, is primarily thinking about trials that Christians are facing because they are Christians. But again, no trial is an accident. Every emotionally distressing event in whatever form, at whatever time, turns the heat up on your faith. Every trial is a means by which you demonstrate whether your faith is the real deal or whether you simply give lip service to following Jesus. Suffering induced by trials is the acid test to a watching world. Your response reveals a lot about the genuineness of your faith. It's easy to act like a Christian when the sun's shining, the wind's blowing. It's not easy when the tornado blows your house away. 
God forbid. And we know how realistic this illustration is with our Mississippi weather. When you come through the trial with your faith intact, your faith is proved genuine. And saying that, keep in mind that passing through trials does not earn any favor with God. There is no merit in faithfulness. Your endurance does not make a bit of difference whether God accepts you. If you are a Christian, you are accepted and loved in Christ and in Christ alone. Your standing before God is based on the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. He earned God's favor on your behalf. Saving faith is received through the righteousness of God as a gift based on what God has done in Christ. Jesus is your right standing before God. If you're God's child, as we saw back in verse 5, you are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So no, passing through trials do not earn you favor with God. They simply reveal whether or not you belong to God. The second lesson about the effect of trials on your faith is this. Trials purge the impurities embedded in your faith. None of us trust God perfectly. None of us trust God as we should. Yet, it is only faith that pleases God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. God delights in the faith of his children. It brings joy to the heart of God when you choose to trust him. And as the Lord allows the heat to be turned up as manifested through the trials in your life, you have a choice, either to trust him or to turn from him and deal with the issue in your own strength with your own limited and inadequate resources. And if you choose to trust in yourself in that moment, the trial is in effect wasted. You're no better off spiritually than you were before. You did not allow the trial to do its work by propelling you into greater spiritual maturity. Spiritual growth, it always comes through faith. And faith is what is called for in trials. And faith is displayed through obedience. Show me someone who is faithful. And you are showing me someone who walks closely with the Lord. The man or woman who trusts God is the same person who obeys him. So here's how it works. You choose to trust God in your trial. You choose to rejoice in the Lord. You refuse to get bitter. You control your temper. You don't give in to cynicism. You don't give in to despair. And in doing so, you discover that the trial itself acts to purge you of those impurities. Trials are uncomfortable, even as fire is hot. But as you refuse to lash out in the flesh and instead choose by faith, to react in a manner that's pleasing to God, you will discover the fruit of the Spirit blossoming in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those are things that you can't produce. I can't produce. They are the fruit of the Spirit. And they blossom and bloom as a result 
of trusting God. And it's trusting God in the suffering brought about by the trials that brings the impurities of your flesh to the surface so that the Lord may remove them. And all that's left is the pure gold, the purity of thought and behavior that honors God and impacts men. What about the outcome of trials? The outcome of trials, or what do they do? Typically, we don't know exactly what a trial is accomplishing. The Lord often does not reveal his particular purpose. We aren't sure what specific character issue God is working on. We always must trust the Lord's goodness and wisdom to do what he wants to do through the trial. And we often trust in the dark. Sometimes it does become clear what a certain trial is supposed to accomplish. But we will not see the final result of our faith in the midst of trials until, verse 7, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So much that's going on in this life is not going to be resolved in this life. There are many loose ends that remain untied until we see the Lord face to face, and we just have to accept that. Right now, it's as if we're looking at a huge canvas, and it appears for all that we can tell, this mishmash of color and thread and knots and loops, just a mess. But one day that canvas is going to be turned over and we'll realize that it's a tapestry. We just weren't looking at the right side. And everything's going to make sense. Everything's going to be clear. Oh, I see what that is supposed to be. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which means when he returns in his blazing glory, will give ultimate meaning to our trials. And it will do this in two ways. We will be seen and we will see. So the first outcome of your trials is that you will be seen. What do I mean by this? Think about it this way. We all desire recognition. We all desire approval. We all want to know that we are valued and that we are significant. We want to know that we are seen. People spend a lot of time trying to be recognized. There's this whole movement of this phenomena we observe in social media with, with social media influencers that, that spend all of their time and energy and passion and focus to try to gain followers. Nothing wrong with making videos on the internet. I'm talking about those that are consumed with doing so. What are they seeking? Recognition. They're seeking to know that their lives matter. Even if you're not an influencer, you desire affirmation. And this is not a bad thing. In fact, this is how God created us. However, as in every other area, sin distorts our need for recognition. Instead of receiving affirmation from the Lord, Instead of seeking our value and worth from his estimation of us, we seek it from other people. We place the opinions of others above what the Lord thinks. When God created man and woman in his image, his intention was that you reflect him, that you shine with his character. And in doing so, 
you would bring praise and glory and honor to him while at the same time receiving from God the affirmation that your life matters. Your life is significant because you find your significance in representing God. And this is why the faithful servant in Jesus' parable will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. It is disobedience, what the Bible calls the deeds of the flesh, that keeps us from reflecting the Lord as we should. But we've already seen in our text how trials, when received by faith, purge impurities and refine our characters. By trials doing so within, we increasingly shine with the character of God, which is simply the fruit of the Spirit. A life lived in God's light, reflecting back the praise and the glory and the honor to Him, is a life that will receive the same from the Lord. This is what verse 7 declares. The proof of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Did you catch that? This is not talking about the praise and glory and honor that the Lord receives. This is talking about the praise and glory and honor that will come to the Christian at Jesus' final return. This is the ultimate affirmation, the well done, good and faithful servant. If you praise God through the trials of this life, you will receive praise from God after this life. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Wait until the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and then each man's praise will come to him from God. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable to realize that God will praise you. It should not, because you were created for recognition. You desire to be seen. No one can ultimately fulfill that craving for recognition and affirmation except for God himself. You got a taste of this when your mother or your father told you, good job, I'm proud of you. Some people wait their whole lives to hear that, and they never do. A man once told me he was 50 years old before he ever heard his dad say, I'm proud of you, son. Until that moment, he did not even realize how much he desired to hear those words. He was a grown and successful man, but he still needed the affirmation and recognition of his dad. Remember that for your children and for your grandchildren. Even if you never hear this from another person, if you are a Christian, you will hear it from the Lord. You will be seen. You will be recognized. You will be affirmed. And it is through the trials that you suffer today that you will shine brighter and brighter with the character of God so that in that day, you receive praise and glory and honor before the Lord. The reason that you will be seen then is because you see now. You see now. Look at verse 8. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, 
you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. You're saying, wait, Jeff, you just said you'll be seen now. You're being seen now. And then you just read what seemed to be the opposite. Stick with me here. Peter did see Jesus with his physical eyes. But he knows those he is writing to did not. And we do not. We did not see Jesus physically then, nor do we see him physically now. But we do love him. We do believe in him. In loving Jesus and believing in Jesus, we see him with the eyes of faith. Faith, after all, is seeing what is unseen. It's by loving the Lord, expressed through faith, that you see Jesus with the eyes of your heart. As much as we don't like to hear it, trials are the means by which our faith is stretched. And as we learn more fully how to lean into Jesus in the midst of our suffering, we find that we see him in the trial. We love Jesus even when we don't understand what's going on. We love him even when we're in the midst of emotional or mental distress. We love him even when the end of the trial is not in sight. And you find as the impurities are purged and your character is refined, you find something amazing happening. Verse 8, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Trials are necessary because of what they do to our faith. Trials are necessary because of what they allow us to see. Faithfully passing through trials allows us to see Jesus clearer, to love him better. What if we did not view trials as something to be avoided or merely endured, but what if we viewed them as something to be embraced? What if we could realize the truth of verse 8? Then we would not shrink back from those trials when they come. We would understand that they, when they have served their purpose, produce great joy. Joy inexpressible. This is the kind of joy that you experience when you get a glimpse of Jesus. And I'm not talking about when he returns. I'm talking about now. When you see him now. It's the foretaste of joy that you will receive when you do see him on that coming day with your physical eyes. The glory of Jesus that is to be revealed is the glory that you can glimpse today. But you have to embrace the purpose of God and what he allows you to pass through. When Jesus prayed the night before his crucifixion, he faced an unimaginable trial. He knew what the cross meant in that garden when he was praying. He knew that the cross meant separation from the love of his Father. He knew what it meant to bear your sins and mine. He knew what was coming and the experience of the full wrath of God poured out on his body and on his soul. And the thought of this judgment that he did not deserve and the mere anticipation of receiving the weight of sin it caused him to cry out really in horror and to pray, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass for me. Yet, not my will, but yours be done. How did Jesus endure? How did he make it through that trial? How did the Son of God accept the will of God and drink the cup of such suffering? 
Hebrews 12.2 gives us the answer. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus looked through the trial to the joy. He saw with spiritual eyes in that moment what he would see with resurrected physical eyes in three days when he rose from the dead. Jesus Christ endured the agony of separation from his father and experienced the hell of that separation on the cross by focusing on the joy and the glory to come. If you are not yet a Christian, you do not have the assurance that your trials will have a meaningful outcome. If you're not a Christian, you don't have the guarantee that you will receive praise and glory and honor at the return of Jesus. If you are not a Christian, you do not see Jesus now, nor will you see him with confidence at his return. Instead, you'll receive only the just and eternal condemnation that your sins deserve and my sins deserve. John 3, 18 says, He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. But if you are a Christian, and I hope that's true, the opposite is the case for you. John 3, 18 also says, He who believes in him is not judged. Your trials are not a judgment. Hear that. Your trials, if you are a Christian, are not a judgment. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Present tense, no condemnation. Jesus was judged in your place. Therefore, you have the guarantee that God is using your trials to prove your faith to refine your character, and to ultimately, as verse 9 concludes, obtain as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we so often need perspective. We need that this morning as we consider this passage, as we take it to our week to come and, and think about what your word says about the trials that we all will face. They might not be Big trials, as others would consider them big, but they're big to us. And Lord, we acknowledge they can either cause us to stumble or to trust you, to trust your purposes. And so we pray for the latter. Help us, Lord, to trust you. Help us to see Jesus with the eyes of our heart. Help us to focus on the joy set before us and to experience all that you have for us as witnesses, as faithful servants. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.